step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone, this is the Origins Podcast, episode 43, and this is your host, Paul. And just before I begin today's podcast, I'd just like to hope that all my listeners, especially those of you who live in the southern United States, are safe and sound and weren't affected by those terrible tornadoes that have gone through those states recently. It seems that natural disasters have been a feature of this year and unfortunately no one seems to be safe from what's happening. Anyway, on with the show. www.bbc.co.uk website. An underground town of migrants has been found in Moscow. And this is a story by Sasha Samanova. Police in Moscow have discovered what they are calling an underground town, housing illegal immigrants from Central Asia in a Soviet-era bomb shelter in the west of the city. The discovery was made by police and agents from the FSB Security Agency and Federal Migration Service. 
The underground area was guarded by a four-metre-high concrete wall and barbed wire, said Andrei Michel of Russia's Ministry of the Interior. It housed 110 men and women. The living areas were fitted with bathrooms, bedrooms and even prayer rooms, Mr Michel added. Similar subterranean living quarters were also uncovered in February under an official delegation room in the capital's Kievsky railway station. The people found there were also described as illegal immigrants. The shadowy nature of foreign migration to Moscow was underlined at the end of 2010 by Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobyanin, who said that around 250,000 work migrants were registered in the Russian capital, but the real number was closer to several million. Last year, around 10,000 illegal migrants were deported from Russia following court decisions against them. According to official accounts, the migrants living in the underground town were working on producing blades and needles for sewing machines. The entrance to the underground space was found within the grounds of a closed-off factory, added Mr Michel, without naming it. The area houses a company specialising in the production of blades, needles and safety pins. And there is also a military radio technology factory producing S-300 and S-400 missile systems nearby. It is thought most of the underground inhabitants are now facing deportation and a further 16 of them will be investigated for alleged criminal activity. The owner of the factory might also face criminal action. A foreign worker in Russia in breach of the Migration Act can be fined up to 5,000 rubles and the employer can face a fine of 800,000 rubles for each worker. At the end of February, Moscow police uncovered a number of illegal immigrants under Kievsky station. It is reported that they were working for a company in charge of cleaning the station area, but the migrants had not been cleared to work. As a result, more than 30 cases of administrative violations were brought against the company. In March, the city's Federal Migration Service unearthed an underground sausage factory where more than 30 immigrants from Tajikistan and Moldova were found. They were not officially registered in the city and therefore lived in the factory itself, sleeping on wooden beds. The issue of illegal migrants in Moscow remains extremely divisive. In March, Mayor Sobyanin announced that when hiring employees, Muscovite candidates should be treated preferentially, followed by Russians from outside the capital, only then should foreigners be considered. According to Moscow's Central Department of Internal Affairs, migrants are responsible for around 70% of crimes committed in the city. But Moscow Federal Migration Service representative Mikhail Tudyurkin said, according to official statistics, foreigners in Russia are only to blame for around 3.5% of the crimes committed. Recently, Alexander Bastrykin of Russia's investigative committee said this criminality was attributable to the conditions the migrants live in.
4,000 years ago, the world's first known billboard looked down on one of the world's first great cities. The imposing stone metropolis, now called Dolavira, sat on an island in a salt marsh in northwestern India. Three sets of walls enclosed it and its gates opened onto broad plazas, bustling workshops and busy markets. The nine-foot-wide wooden sign, remnants of which were found a decade ago, may have hung on a central tower where its 15-inch white gypsum letters would have proclaimed to all literate citizens and visitors, well, that's where the picture blurs, because today no one can read the ancient script. From the www.usnews.com website, an article by Tim Appenzella. Ancient Inzus, Mysteries of History. What name or slogan loomed over Dolavira is just one of the many puzzles of the ancient Indus civilization, which flourished along the modern Indus River and a now vanished river to the east between 2600 and 1900 BC. The Indus erected half a dozen major cities of brick and stone, boasting amenities unmatched in the ancient world, including sewers and baths. Digging into mounds that now entomb these cities on the dusty plains of Pakistan and northwestern India, archaeologists have found exquisite jewellery, statuary and ceramics decorated with real and fanciful animals, including unicorns by the hundreds. But they have found little to reveal the beliefs that sparked the culture and held it together for 700 years until it withered, perhaps because shifting rivers flooded some cities and parched others. Those secrets may be uncovered when archaeologists can finally read the script that adorned that ancient billboard, but perhaps not even then. The news of the Indus Valley cities reached the modern world 75 years ago in the pages of the illustrated London News, where British archaeologist John Marshall announced the discovery of a civilization that turned out to be as old as Mesopotamia. Many scholars expected the ruins would reveal a culture much like it. But the more Marshall and his successors dug, the less the Indus culture looked like other Bronze Age societies. There's no evidence for armies or war or anything like that, says archaeologist Jim Schaefer of Case Western Reserve University. Nor is there any sign of grandiose rulers. There was no cult of the individual, said Harvard University's Richard Meadow, who is excavating an Indus city called Harappa in modern Pakistan. There are no fancy burials, no monumental displays of wealth. Somehow, without war or charismatic strongmen, the Indus people imposed their culture across a territory larger than France. Everywhere, their builders made bricks in a length-to-width-to-height ratio of 4 to 2 to 1, a signature of Indus construction. Tax collectors used standardised weights to assay goods, potters turned out identical designs, and the elite carried soapstone seals 
embossed with indescript and animal designs to stamp trade goods. They also had tremendous craft technology, if not the best craft technology in the Bronze Age, says Schaefer. In city after city, the Indus people built deep brick-lined wells, smelted and cast copper and bronze and made jewellery. The cohesion of the Indus culture may have been rooted in commerce. Possibly it was a large economic empire with a strong sense of national ethos, says R.S. Bisht of the Archaeological Survey of India, who heads the excavations at Dolavira. The Indus people sought raw materials, including metals and semi-precious stones, from as far away as Afghanistan, and their ships carried beads, bangles and other products up the Persian Gulf to the cities of Mesopotamia. These trade links might have kept the elite of the far-flung Indus realm in close touch. Others think something more esoteric must have held the Indus culture together. In the absence of a political elite, of a standing army, one is left with the symbolic, a system of beliefs, says Schaefer. But decades of digging have revealed nothing like the elaborate temples of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Still the cities do hold clues, says archaeologist Gregory Possell of the University of Pennsylvania. When it came to sanitation, the Indus people seem to have been as obsessive as modern Americans. Ubiquitous wells and baths, many private houses had them, make a strong case that people there were really into water, symbolically and in terms of purification, Possel says. The great bath at Mahinjodaro in Pakistan, 40 feet long and 8 feet deep, may have been the Indus equivalent of a temple. Water wasn't the only force in Indus spiritual life. Seals and tablets found in the ruins depict unicorns, three-headed buffaloes, and encounters between humans, gods and beasts. If we could unravel these folk tales, said Possel, we could get into the ideology of the Indus people. The inscriptions might help if archaeologists could read them. Archaeologists think that some of the writing identifies the seal's owner. In other cases, the procession of symbols which look tantalisingly like real objects, a trident, a fish, a two-handled jar, may narrate a story. Would-be decipherers have published more than 50 claims of success, but most scholars think the Indus Code is yet to be cracked. So far, no one has found anything like the Rosetta Stone that unlocked the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt, a bilingual inscription with both the undeciphered script and a known script. But where there are ruins, there is hope. Archaeologists are digging deeper at Harappa and other sites. What they find may finally give a voice to the Indus people.
I was inspired to write this list because I'm in the Navy and have spent a great deal of time at sea. Although most of the time it is quite boring, I have had the opportunity to see some beautiful, amazing and sometimes strange things. Finding an abandoned catamaran in the middle of the Atlantic with no signs of life on board, apart from some recently caught fish, and finding a 100-year-old boy that had been drifting undiscovered for decades are two that come to my mind right now. Also, I would like to note that being on an abandoned ship, especially a warship, is a very creepy experience. Knowing that it was once full of life and is now empty is quite a strange and lonely experience. Ghost ships are defined as fictional haunted ships or ones found adrift with their entire crew either missing or dead or one which has been decommissioned but not yet scrapped. I have therefore not included supposed haunted ships such as the Queen Mary or the USS Hornet. From the listverse.com an article by Dan F the top 10 ghost ships. Number 10. The Carol A. Deering. The Carol A. Deering was a five-mast schooner built in 1911. Named for the owner's son, she was a cargo vessel and her final voyage found her sailing from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil on December 2, 1920. The master, William Merritt, and his first mate, Sewell Merritt, his son, had a crew of ten Scandinavians. Both fell ill, and Captain W.B. Wormel was recruited as his replacement. After leaving Rio, the Deering stopped in Barbados for supplies. Here, the first mate McLennan got drunk and complained to a fellow mariner about Captain Wormel, his incompetence at disciplining the crew and his inability to navigate the ship without the aid of McLennan. McLennan was arrested after he was overheard boasting, I'll get the captain before we get to Norfolk, I will. Wormel forgave him, bailed him out and the Deering set sail for Hampton Roads. The vessel was not sighted until January the 28th, 1921, when a lightship keeper was hailed by a red-haired man milling around on the foredeck. The man told the lightship keeper in a foreign accent that the Deering had lost her anchors, but the keeper was unable to relay the message due to a malfunctioning radio. Three days later, on January the 31st, the Deering was found aground on Diamond Shoals off Cape Hatteras. Boarding of the ship was delayed due to bad weather, and eventually rescue personnel made it onto the vessel on February the 4th. What they found made the Deering one of the most written about maritime mysteries in history. The Deering was completely abandoned. The logs and navigation equipment were missing, as were two of the ship's lifeboats. The galley was midway into preparation for the following day's meal. 
Unfortunately, the vessel was scuttled with dynamite before a full investigation into the mystery could take place. The crew's disappearance occurred in the Bermuda Triangle and several other vessels had disappeared in the same period and region as the Deering, including the sulphur freighter Hewitt. Many theories became popular during the investigation, including paranormal explanations, mutiny, piracy and rum runners stealing the vessel to sail to the Bahamas. The formal investigation ended in 1922 without any official ruling on the mysteries surrounding the apparent abandonment of the Carol A. Deering. Number 9. Beichimo. Built in Sweden in 1911, the Beichimo was a pelt trader along the routes of northwest Canada. She was given to Great Britain by Germany as part of war reparations. The 20-year-old cargo steamer's final voyage occurred in October 1931, carrying a cargo of fur. The vessel became ice-packed off the coast of the town of Barrow. The crew temporarily abandoned the vessel and headed half a mile inland in search of shelter from the freezing conditions. The ship eventually broke free of the ice a week later on the 8th of October and the crew returned, only to become trapped in ice again on the 15th of October. Fifteen crew members built a makeshift shelter some distance away, intent on waiting out the winter and eventually sailing the ship free. On the 24th of November, a blizzard struck. When it calmed, the crew found that the Bay Chimo had vanished, presumed sunk in the storm. Several days later, a seal hunter informed the crew that he had sighted the vessel about 45 miles from their camp. The crew tracked the vessel to retrieve their precious cargo and left the Beichimo to its fate. Over the next four decades, there were numerous sightings of the Beichimo along the coast of Canada. Several boardings were attempted, few were successful. The ones that were often resulting in the salvages becoming trapped inside due to adverse weather conditions. The last confirmed sighting occurred in 1969. 38 years after she was abandoned, she was found frozen in an ice pack. In 2006, the Alaskan government began an operation to locate the ghost ship of the Arctic, but to date they have been unsuccessful. Trapped in ice, floating or at the bottom of the ocean, the fate of the Bay Chimo remains a mystery. Number 8. Eliza Battle Launched in Indiana in 1852, the Eliza Battle was a luxury wooden-hulled paddle steamer regularly entertaining presidents and VIPs. Disaster struck on a cold night in February 1858 when the steamer navigated the Tom Bigby. A fire started on cotton bales on the main deck and soon spread out of control. The strong winds helped the fire spread quickly over the upper deck. Out of control, the Eliza Battle drifted downstream, coming to rest at Kemp's Landing. 
Men died in efforts to save their loved ones, and women died in their efforts to save their children, though fortunately there were few aboard the ill-fated trip of the Eliza battle. Of the estimated 100 people on board, 26 souls were lost, mainly attributed to death by exposure. The ship sank in 28 feet of water, and its wreck remains to this day. During the spring floods, late at night during the full moon, it is said that the riverboat can be seen rising out of the water and floating up the river with music playing and fires burning on the deck. Sometimes only the outline of the steamer is sighted. The fire is so bright, a name plate bearing the name Eliza Battle can be seen on the side of the vessel. Local fishermen believe that sighting the Eliza Battle is a sign of an impending disaster and ill omens to ships still plying the Tom Bigby River. Number 7. The MV Joita. The MV Joita was a luxury yacht built in 1931 in Los Angeles for movie director Roland West. During the Second World War, she was outfitted as a patrol boat and worked around the coast of Hawaii until the end of the war. On October 3, 1955, the Joita set sail from Samoa, bound for the Tokelau Islands, 270 nautical miles away. Her departure had been delayed due to a clutch malfunction on the port main engine. The clutch was not repaired and the yacht sailed on one engine. There were 25 souls on board, including a government official, two children and a surgeon on his way to perform an amputation. Though the journey should have taken no more than two days, by the third day Joita had not arrived in port. No distress call had been received, even though the vessel's course would have kept her well within radio range of Coast Guard and relay stations. A 100,000 square mile search was conducted by aircraft of the Royal New Zealand Air Force, but there was no sign of the yacht or her crew and passengers. It was not until November the 10th, five weeks later, that the vessel was found. The Tuvalu sighted the Joita 600 miles from her planned route. The vessel was listing heavily to port, with her deck edge partially submerged. Four tons of cargo were missing, and none of the crew members were on board. The ship's VHF radio was tuned to the international distress frequency. The vessel was found to still be running on one engine, with an auxiliary pump rigged, but not running. All the clocks on board had stopped at 10.25 and switches for cabin and navigation lights were on. A doctor's bag was found on the floor with four blood-stained bandages. The logbook, sextant and chronometer were missing, along with three life rafts. A subsequent inquiry found that the vessel's hull was sound and that the fate of the crew was inexplicable on the evidence submitted at the inquiry. The missing life rafts were especially intriguing, as the vessel was cork-lined, making her unsinkable, a fact that the master and the crew would have been fully aware of. No mention of the use of the medical equipment was in the investigation. 
the missing cargo also remained a mystery. Theories ranged from the outright bizarre, remaining Japanese forces from World War II were to blame for the disappearances operating from an isolated island base, to the more believable insurance fraud, piracy, mutiny. The Joita was repaired but ran aground on several more occasions. Being dubbed a cursed ship, she was eventually sold for scrap in the 1960s. Number 6. The Flying Dutchman Probably the most famous ghost ship, the Flying Dutchman has been popularised by the Pirates of the Caribbean. And for the big kids amongst you, Spongebob Squarepants, which is the Frying Dutchman. But what many people will not know is that the Flying Dutchman refers to the captain of the vessel and not the vessel itself. Several spectral ships around the world are known as the Flying Dutchman, but I am going to refer to the original, located off the Cape of Good Hope. Here is the embellished tale. The captain of the vessel, Hendrik van der Decken, was voyaging around the Cape of Good Hope with the final destination of Amsterdam. He swore to round the Cape if it took him till doomsday. With a terrible storm abound, van der Decken refused to turn the ship around despite the pleas of the crew. Monstrous waves pummeled the vessel while the captain sang obscene songs, drank beer and smoked his pipe. Finally, with no options remaining, several of the crew mutinied. The captain aroused from his drunken stupor, shot dead the lead mutineer and threw his body overboard. Above him the clouds parted and a voice billowed from the heavens. You're a very stubborn man. To which the captain replied, I never asked for a peaceful voyage, I never asked for anything, so clear off before I shoot you too. Vanderdecken made aim to fire in the sky, but the pistol exploded in his hand. You are condemned to sail the oceans for eternity with a ghostly crew of dead men, bringing death to all who sight your spectral ship and to never make port or know a moment's peace. Furthermore, gall shall be your drink and red-hot iron your meat. There have been many sightings of the Flying Dutchman, often by reputable and experienced seamen, including Prince George of Wales and his brother, Prince Albert Victor of Wales. According to Admiral Carl Donitz, U-boat crews logged sightings of the Flying Dutchman off the Cape Peninsula. For most, or all, of these crews, it proved to be a terrible omen. The ghostly East Indiaman was also seen at Musenberg in 1939. On a calm day in 1941, a crowd at Glen Cairn Beach saw a ship with wind-filled sails, but it vanished just as it was about to crash onto the rocks. Number 5. Young Teaser Built in 1813, the Young Teaser was an American privateer schooner preying on the sea trade of the British Empire off the coast of Halifax. 
She was a remarkably fast vessel, taking many prizes from Nova Scotia, several right at the mouth of Halifax Harbour. In June 1813, the teaser was chased by the Nova Scotian privateer brig Sir John Sherbrooke, but teaser was able to escape into the fog. Shortly after, HMS La Hogue, a 74-gunned third-rate ship of the line, pursued the schooner as she was reportedly cornered in Mahone Bay. With nightfall pending, La Hogue was joined by the HMS Orpheus, and the vessels prepared to board Young Teaser, which had nowhere left to run. The La Hogue sent a five-boat boarding party towards the schooner. As the boats approached, the Young Teaser exploded. Seven of the crew survived and claimed they last saw the Teaser's first lieutenant, Frederick Johnson, running to the main magazine with flaming embers. Considered mad, Johnson threw the embers into the ammunition, killing himself and 30 other crew members, many of whom lie in unmarked graves in an Anglican cemetery in Mahone Bay. Soon after the tragic event, eyewitness reports began to surface that the young teaser had re-emerged from the depths as a fiery spectral ship. The following year, on June 27th, people of Mahone Bay were startled to see an apparition sailing into the same water where the young teaser had been destroyed. As it came nearer, they recognised it as the privateer, and then it vanished in a huge puff of flame and smoke. The story spread throughout the country, and on the next anniversary, many more people were on hand, watching for the fire ship. Sure enough, it appeared again, and it is legend to this day that many persons have witnessed the appearance of the ghost ship and have seen it disappear in flame. If you are standing on the deck of a ship at sea, the apparition appears to threaten to ram your vessel. Many report an overwhelming sense of fear when they see the phantom pirate ship. The ghost ship, known locally as the Teaser Light, can be seen on foggy nights, most notably those that fall within three days of a full moon. Ghost Ship Number 4 Octavius The Octavius was allegedly discovered west of Greenland by a whaler on October the 11th 1775. Crew members of the whaler Herald boarded the assumed derelict vessel, discovering the entire crew dead, frozen apparently at the moment of their death. The captain was found in his cabin, also frozen at his desk with his pen in hand, still writing in his log. He was accompanied by a dead woman, a child covered in a blanket, and a sailor holding a tinderbox. The petrified boarding party left in a hurry, taking only the log back to the Herald. Unfortunately, its frozen state meant that it slipped from its binding and they only recovered the first and last pages. The partly complete entry in the log was dated 1762, meaning the vessel had been in the state they discovered it, for 13 years. 
The Octavius had left England for the Orient in 1761. The captain opted to take the treacherous but much shorter route of the unconquered Northwest Passage. It is believed that the ship became trapped in ice whilst travelling past northern Alaska. The discovery of the ship meant that the Octavius was the first ship to navigate the Northwest Passage, albeit the crew never lived to witness it. The ship was presumed to have broken free of the ice in the winter months, and the crew, dead from exposure, drifted with the winds for 13 years. The Octavius was never seen again after this strange encounter. Number 3. Lady Loverbond 13th of February 1748, celebrating his marriage, Simon Reed took his new bride Annette aboard his ship, the Lady Loverbond, for a cruise to Portugal. At the time it was considered bad luck to bring a woman on board. Unbeknownst to Reed, his first mate, John Rivers, was in love with the captain's wife and paced the deck in an uncontrollable rage. Overcome with jealousy, he attacked the helmsman with a belaying pin, killing him instantly. Rivers took the wheel and steered the loverbond towards the notorious Goodwin Sands. All souls were lost, and the subsequent inquiry ruled a verdict of misadventure. Fifty years later to the day, two separate ships witnessed a phantom ship sailing the Goodwin Sands. On the 13th of February 1848, local fishermen saw a vessel wreck on the area and lifeboats were sent out to investigate, with no sign of ship on the sands being found. In 1948, the ghost of Loverbond was seen again by Captain Bull Prestwick and was described as looking real but having an eerie green glow. Unfortunately, you will have to wait until the 13th of February 2048 for the next sighting, as she is said to appear only once every 50 years. Don't forget to mark it on your calendar. The Goodwin Sands are England's most fertile grounds for ghost ships, and is also the location of the legendary island of Lemire. The Lady Loverbond shares the area with two other phantom vessels, a liner called the SS Montrose and the Shrewsbury, a man of war. Number 2. The Mary Celeste The Mary Celeste can rightly claim the title of the greatest maritime mystery of all time, and is definitely the most documented case of a missing crew. To this day, the events that lead to the eight crew and two passengers apparently vanishing from the face of the earth are a topic of great controversy and debate. On December the 13th, 1872, onlookers witnessed a small two-masted sailing vessel entering the Bay of Gibraltar. The Mary Celeste had sailed from New York on November the 7th and was bound for Genoa. She had a cargo of 1,701 barrels of alcohol. On the afternoon of December the 5th, Captain Morehouse of the De Gracia came upon a brigantine following a parallel course that he recognised as the Mary Celeste. 
He and the master, Captain Briggs, were close friends and had dined together before setting sail. Morehouse was alarmed to see the Celeste yawing irrationally, surprising as he knew Briggs to be a talented seaman. After two hours of attempted hails with no reply, Morehouse proceeded to board the out-of-control vessel. The Celeste appeared seaworthy and seemed to have been abandoned with haste. All of the ship's papers were missing, with the exception of the captain's log, with the last entry stating the ship had passed the Azores on November the 25th. Stories arose of warm cups of tea, half-eaten breakfast and still-smoking pipes. These stories are most likely untrue, but it was clear the vessel had been abandoned in a hurry, but there were no signs of violence or a struggle. A six-month supply of uncontaminated food and fresh water was still aboard, and the crew's personal possessions and artefacts were left untouched. All the cargo was accounted for, with the exception of nine barrels being empty. There was water damage to the vessel, which leads some to believe the Celeste was abandoned due to inclement weather. But this contradicts Briggs' personality. He was described as a brave and courageous man who would only abandon ship if there was an imminent risk of loss of life. Morehouse sailed the Celeste into Gibraltar, arriving on December the 13th. A marine surveyor who was charged with investigating the mystery discovered what he believed to be a few spots of blood in the captain's cabin, an unclean ornamental cutlass in Briggs' cabin, a knife and a deep gash on a railing that he equated with a blunt object or an axe. But while he did not find such a weapon on board, he believed the damage was recent. He found no trace of any damage to the vessel, and she was found seaworthy. Many explanations were put forward for the events. Piracy, insurance fraud, murder by the crew of the Degracia, sea quake or other phenomena an explosion caused by the fumes from the cargo, ergotism from contaminated flour causing the crew to become mad, mutiny and several paranormal explanations. Over the next 13 years, the Mary Celeste changed hands 17 times, with several tragic deaths. Her final captain deliberately grounded her to make a false insurance claim. In 2001, the National Underwater and Maritime Agency claims to have found the wreck of the Mary Celeste. Although sceptics claim that there are hundreds of similar wrecks in the area, and they cannot determine with any certainty the identity of the vessel. And finally, number one, Aurang Medan. In June 1947, Frantic Morse code messages were received from the Dutch freighter Aurang Meden. The message was received by many ships and several responded. The message reported, All officers including captain are dead lying in chart room and bridge. Possibly whole crew dead. A second message was received shortly after. This time a voice over the radio simply stating, I die. Dutch and British listening posts were able to triangulate the position and vector a rescue attempt to the Aurang Meden. 
After several hours, the Silver Star arrived on the scene. After failed attempts to hail the vessel using whistle signals and flashing lights, they assembled a small team and boarded the apparently undamaged Aurang Meden. They first ventured to the bridge where a radio was playing. Several members of the ship's company, including the captain, were found dead. More corpses were discovered on the cargo deck, including a dog standing on all four legs, frozen and snarling into thin air. No survivors were found on board, but what was most disturbing was the nature of the bodies. All frozen in place, looking up towards the sun, their arms outstretched, mouths gaping, and a look of immense horror on their faces. A trip to the communications room revealed the author of the SOS messages, also dead, his hand still on the Morse sending key, eyes wide open and teeth bared. Strangely, there were no signs of wounds or injuries on any of the bodies. The crew of the Silver Star attempted to enter the cargo bay, but a small explosion from an unknown source soon resulted in an uncontrollable inferno. Beaten back, they were forced to abandon the vessel and return to the safety of the Silver Star. Within minutes, the vessel sank to the depths of the ocean floor. Although there are no clear records of a ship by the name Urang Meden existing, many conspiracy theorists believe the vessel was acting under a false name and was transporting something that officially did not exist. The fate of the Aurang Meden and her crew remains a mystery. Speculation has been made that pirates killed the crew and sabotaged the ship, although this doesn't explain the peculiar grimaces and lack of injuries on the corpses. Others have claimed that clouds of methane or other noxious natural gases could have bubbled up from fissures on the seabed and engulfed the ship. Even more fantastical theories involving aliens and ghosts abound. Usually in the podcasts I've done in the past, I've thanked the people who have provided feedback for the show or who have made a donation to help keep the podcast going. I haven't done that for the last couple because my records have been a bit of a mess and I'm not really quite sure what to do with it all since the flood messed everything up so badly. So what I've decided to do today is to thank everyone who made a comment on iTunes since the beginning of the year. So it's thank you to Camelot TRT66, Joseph Black, Captain Earl B, Chef Juss, Bug Squasher, 
Adam in Illinois, Heater 4, JMZST22, not quite sure how to say that one, Chicago Christopher, and Brian Good. From Australia, thank you to David Yates. From Canada, Riley Smart. And from the UK, Car Sick Kitty. And thank you to those people for providing feedback on iTunes. iTunes is a great place for the podcast to be hosted, so the more feedback I get there, the better the podcast performs in the number of downloads that I get. And of course, the more downloads I get, the more inspiration I get to keep going. So if you do feel like providing a review for the podcast, and it is greatly appreciated, iTunes is a good place to do it, or Podcast Alley, or even an email. And if you'd like to email, you can email me at origins at origins.info. Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. And in case you don't know, Origins is one of my other podcasts that I do. And of course, there is also Bizarre Bazaar, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, B-A-Z-A-A-R. If you can't remember the names, just go to iTunes and look up Paul Ricks, P-A-U-L-R-E-X, and the first three that come up are my podcasts. So thank you everyone for your support, and on with the stories. And from the www.mysterymag.com website, an article by Martin Jeffrey, The Virginian Red Devil. The story begins in the small town of Crewe, Virginia, in May or June 1968. Bob was only a young child, but remembers the incident well. My mother was giving birth, and my dad had sent us to wash our hands on the front porch and this childlike creature stepped up on the porch and scared me to death. I tried to tell my brother, who was also on the porch, but he never saw this thing. I could not speak to tell my brother, and I believed that this thing was doing something to us to keep us from talking to each other. The creature had pinkish red skin, bright shiny eyes and a mouth. I don't remember seeing a nose. If so, it was very small. Its feet were like small hoofs, and I called it the devil. It moved just like lightning, very fast. Bob reported the sighting to his father shortly before his death ten years later, but his father wouldn't accept his son's sighting. As with most paranormal experiences, it's something that Bob cannot forget, And still, 36 years later, he has not changed his story or his belief in what happened that fateful day. The Spheres of Influence website edited by Chris C. is the source for the majority of sightings mentioned here after its webmaster had a sighting of his own. 
It also mentions recent sightings of the Virginian Red Devil, as well as revealing that it is known by other names, such as Trollic and Moon Worshipper. CM reports that in May 1992, after high school, a friend and CM decided to visit a local nature trail. They arrived at the trail at around 4.30, and while walking, they witnessed the creature. CM describes the devil as being around two to three feet tall, covered in red fur. Suddenly it let out a piercing laugh, at which point CM's friend freaked out and ran back to the path. The red devil chased his friend for about 10 to 20 feet, before running off into the woods with the same shrill laugh. A month later, JP was driving Red Hills Road, Cynixon, when he decided to turn around and backed up into a little side road. His truck scraped the road and he opened the door to investigate the damage. A noise was heard in the bushes, causing JP to retreat back to his truck thinking it was a dangerous animal. As JP looked through the truck's back window, the devil slowly stepped out of the bushes, first revealing his hands and then fully appearing with a large grin. The only way I can really describe the creature is a three or four foot satyr. He had red hair all over his body and had the legs of an animal, hooves like a horse or a goat. So I did the only logical thing anyone would do. I put the truck in gear and took off like crazy. Another sighting occurred in 1995 when a husband and wife were parked at Red Hills when they noticed a little creature staring into the car. As soon as they saw it, the devil turned round and ran into the woods. A sighting occurred in April 1997. J.S. was on a country back road when he saw a little thing. It looked like a white dog until it stood up on two legs and walked into the woods. A radio broadcast from WROX 96 seemed to confirm that another witness had seen the same creature. The man claimed to first witness the creature when he was a child and has researched it since. Apparently the Native Americans are well aware of the creatures and call them moon worshippers. On a warm, damp night in June 1997, BCM witnessed a figure about three feet tall. It had a pudgy stomach with white fur, its legs were very angled and its head was rather pointed with deep-set eyes that seemed dark and its face blended in with its fur. It had rather thin arms with hands that looked as though they had claws. It stood there for a few seconds, but when I jumped, it scared it away. It turned and bounded or galloped off on four legs. The sighting took place at Chandler's Crest on Chincoteague. In August 1997, a sighting was submitted by an anonymous visitor who reported that a neighbour's boyfriend had witnessed the devil many years ago when he was a teenager, ten years previously. He described it as, They had brownish hair on them from what he could see in the dark. They had bare human-like faces and were murmuring to themselves and laughing. The sighting took place in Lynchburg. 
Based on the few sightings of the Red Devil, here is how the sightings break down. If the creature is singular, then when it appeared in 1968, it was a definite red colour, while nearly 30 years later, it is twice reported as being white in colour. Its most consistent features are that it is between 3 and 4 feet in height and covered in fur with hoofed feet. Twice it is laughed during sightings. So what could be causing these sightings? If we take into consideration misidentification and hoaxing, we could be looking for a mythical explanation. Although I cannot find references in Native American folklore to moon worshippers. It seems that the Red Devil could actually be linked to the Giao Lud Mosig Egg. Associated with the Maliset Nation of New Brunswick, they are magical little beings who appear at certain times and places in the native community. They are said to represent an omen, good or bad, but tend to be directly associated with the global trickster theme. The Gio Ludmosis Egg do their thing by playing pranks on tricks and people. They would often do their tricks in the middle of the night just to make a person's hair stand on end. Little tricks like thumping on the side of your camp or canoe, braiding horse manes, tying up clothes on the clothesline, or a stone thrown into the still waters where you are quietly fishing might be the types of tricks the tricksters would play on people. Little games such as these would be the harmless variety of mischievous activities that could be expected of the tricksters. They, like the healers, can be appeased with a small gift of tobacco placed on the ground near or where the pranks are taking place. The tricks will then stop immediately after the giving of the tobacco. Among the Maliseet people, the Giao Ludmosigega are often seen beside or near water places like riverbanks, marshy grounds, brooksides or lake shores. Some people who fear them fall victim to tricks or pranks and can become very fearful or openly shaken when the little creatures make their appearance to them and many times unpleasant events result. But others have experienced personal healings, good health and good fortune following their contact. The Giao Ludmosis Egg are the equivalent to what the brownies are to the English and yet there is not a description of them to compare the Red Devil with them. It's also interesting to note that the Red Devil's description does sound European in nature. The same description could be used for European trickster types such as Robin Goodfellow, the Satyr, Puck and the pagan god Pan, all of which have the same themes and objectives which are similar in that of the Red Devil. It would be interesting to see where the original settlers in this Virginian area originated and if they have strong English or Greek backgrounds. My own personal conclusion is that the Red Devil fits within the same category as Springheeled Jack, a lone trickster that often defies explanation but continues to be seen regularly. Our world without the Virginian Red Devil and Springheeled Jack would be a lot less interesting one.
and from the www.dailymail.co.uk website, E.T. is brown bread. Literally, Siberian alien was a hoax made out of loaf. We said it was too good to be true, and sadly, it was. The students behind the discovery of an alien's body at a UFO crash site have admitted that it was a crummy hoax made out of stale bread. Friends Timur Hilol, 18, and Kirill Vlazov, 19, shot the video that showed the alien's mangled remains frozen in snow in Irkutsk, Siberia. The pair were questioned by police over their extraterrestrial discovery, but admitted to their stunt. But not before their creation became an internet sensation, drawing almost 700,000 hits on YouTube. Their find was deemed serious enough for the Kremlin to get involved, and a spokesman from the Russian Interior Ministry confirmed the hoax. It was lying under his bed, and an examination of it revealed it had been made of breadcrumbs which were covered with chicken skin. Prosecutors are now considering whether or not the pair have committed any crimes. Sergei Zvedzin, a police spokesman, said, What we are going to do with them, we have not yet decided. We'll be looking to see if a crime has been committed in connection with the use of animal skin. If they have committed an offence, they will have to pay for it. Their bogus claims appeared after locals reported seeing an alien spaceship crash in the area last month. Local UFO expert Alex Komanov from the Russian UFO Research Centre dismissed the find, saying, The body is interesting. The texture is similar to a real biological entity. However, the creature has no clothes, and I am sure that intelligent beings would be dressed in something like a spacesuit or coveralls. However, conspiracy theorists have already started accusing the government of a cover-up. One said, We know what we saw. Powerful people in the military just don't want us to see this. And if you'd like to make up your own mind on the alien, visit the show notes at www.origins.info. When you go to the website, click on the show notes link for Mysteries Abound, then on the link to episode 43, and then on the link to this article. There are two photographs, plus the original YouTube video, which you may find interesting. The students have done quite a good mock-up even though it may be made of breadcrumbs and chicken skins.
Now I know this is not a complete list, but these are the names of the people I'd like to thank for making a donation to the Mysteries Abound podcast since January. If I've left your name out, I'm sorry, but somewhere along the track I've misplaced the original email. So it's thank you to Philip Hunsinger, Julian Tucker, Trent Meadows, Ian McKay, Matt Hopper, Michael Paulson and Matthew McDonald. Thank you everyone and thank you to anyone who I've missed out. And remember, if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast, it's easy. Just visit the show notes at origins.origins.info, click on the donate button under the Mysteries Abound symbol and follow the steps through PayPal. And in return for a one-off donation, I'll give you the links to the extended version of the Mysteries Abound podcast, which goes for about another 30 to 40 minutes. And in the extended version of this podcast, you will hear about Footsteps When No One Is There, The Ghostly Laughter of Children, Is America's Oldest Haunted House, Was the Star of Bethlehem a UFO? and a story about a train ride to a parallel dimension. We'll have a look at the incredible mimicking lyrebird and the art of head shrinkers in South America. Those and a couple of other stories in the extended version of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Until then, it's bye for now, everyone, and thank you for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.